Aaron's saying nice things about me. That means he forgot to hit record. <laughs> There'll be no evidence of this. We're going to have to do this whole thing I didn't, again. I didn't record any of that, man. So lay that up again. Can we get some professionals in here? Some people who do this for a living. Hi, you're listening to the Reinvention Podcast. I'm Aaron Anderson, and I'm here with multiple entrepreneur Scott Wayne. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, Aaron Anderson, and wonderful to be with you. Hey, thanks for being here. Now, I call you an entrepreneur, but you you disagree with that. I do. I deny it emphatically. So, but but you've started a whole bunch of companies. Yes, I have. So, <laughs> so why, how does that not make you an entrepreneur? I, well, I've also i i've never um, i've never been in a car wreck, but it doesn't mean that I haven't created car wrecks. They're oh. totally different things. So, I've created businesses. <laughs> Actually, I've created car wrecks too. Uh, I've created businesses, um, but I'm not an entrepreneur. And in fact, one of the worst. Uh, events I've ever been to in my life was a uh, celebration dinner for an Inc. 5000 fast growth company thing. It was one of these resorts and I was there with my business partner and, and it was just awful. I think we went somewhere else and, and drank champagne. So you're, so it's not that you, you are not an entrepreneur by the definition. It's that you don't want to associate with those kinds of people. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that's it. I'm, I'm not enthralled by the motivation, which I think given your audience, they'll be able to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's good. So, um, so the reason I want to talk to you, yeah. this podcast is for the people who listen to this podcast are artists and designers and other creative types who have maybe reached a place in their life where they would also like to make some money. Um, you know, we, we all sort of get to that. And so one of the things that I've done is talk to people like yourself, entrepreneurs, people who've started businesses, people who've pivoted in their lives in some way career-wise, and ask them how to do it. And the last question I ask most everyone is, if you could give one piece of advice, what would you give? And nearly everyone has said the same thing, which is, I wish I had taken a business class and learned some basic business skills earlier. Um, and so the re one of the reasons I want to talk to you is just to get to those skills, because you are one of the most successful at this. You are a serial entrepreneur. You've created multiple businesses, some of which are multi-million dollar businesses. Um, so how do you do that? Just a clarification on definition. Multi-million typically refers to the revenue coming into them, not the profit coming out. Gotcha. So, so, that much, that. so there's that much money going through the company. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing, though. Actually, profit isn't, isn't that important in the short term. Profit is important in the long term. Uh, what's important in the short term is cash flow, whether you have cash. Cash determines whether you live or die or not. And we're living in live or die times. And so I can say throughout 2020, I didn't look at our accounting system at all. Um, my business partner spent some time there, obviously. But where I did look every single day was at the amount of work that we were winning and how much money we had in the bank account. And it's those two things that determine whether we were going to survive 2020 or not. Not what the end of the year accruals. Accruals is what you technically build and what you technically spent and what you technically have as profit. Technically is a wonderful word. Uh, what's in your bank account determines whether there's bread on the plate or not. Gotcha. So um, I, I teach in the executive MBA program at our university. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about all those students is that they understand some pretty basic um, business terms and concepts. And uh, one of the things I've noticed about a lot of uh, artists is that well, many of them don't. So um, I have, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, like a handout that the School of Business uses. I'll, I'll put that up on our website and I'll mail it out to everybody who's on the listserv. But 
with your permission, I'd like to go through some of those basic business things. You just use cash flow, yeah. which is an, which is a really important idea. But um, can can we just sort of go through the process from beginning of creating something new, whether it's a business or anything? I mean, so how do you come up with an idea? I've seen you pivot on a dime, throw your entire self in, start new businesses. And, um, and just reinvent yourself in incredible ways. Like I said, on a dime, how do you come up with these ideas? I've seen you do it in the span of a couple of days, come up with a new company. At desperate, desperate times, call for desperate measures. Uh, so I actually think your creatives will be able to relate to this, arguably better than business people. So let me go back to why I don't think I'm an entrepreneur. Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs take their satisfaction from building a business for which the measures of success are either growth or profits. And that's great. But there's a good chance that if you're a creative, if you self-identify as a creative, whether you're an artist or a filmmaker or anything else, then your business is the vehicle for you to do the thing that you love. So if you're a filmmaker, you want to have a business so you can make film. Um, you wouldn't get the same thrill if I said to you, hey, there's a great opportunity in renting porta potties. Uh, go do that. Right. But an entrepreneur would, because an entrepreneur is typically driven by, hey, my measure of success is uh, the numbers and certainly general businesses. And that's not me, and it's probably not your audience. But what your audience do understand is demand for your product, is you have a skill set, and there's an audience. And just like selling tickets for a show, that's your indicator of whether the public think you're any good or not at what you do. Well, business is very similar to that. People either buy your product or they don't, which is also why I would give a warning of when you're testing your product, don't ask people if they would purchase it. Hmm. Do an experiment, see if they do purchase it, because they're two very different things. If I was to start a cookie stand, would you buy cookies? Oh, yeah, sure I would. Okay, well, here's a cookie. Will you pay a dollar for it? Oh, I'm kind of broken. I want to spend that dollar on a soda. Um, they're different. And so, you know, it's just like whether people buy a ticket to your art ex exhibition or they don't. Um, that's sort of what matters. And so I think of it as a Venn diagram, three concentric circles of your skills. So I call that your capability, what you can do, whether there's a demand for it, whether people want to experience that skill, service, product, whatever it is. And then the third is really important whether they have budget that they'll apply to it, whether they have mm. money in their pocket that they will spend on that thing, whether they're a corporation or they're an individual human being. And what you want to do is hit right in the center of those three circles. And if you can hit in the center, you can make money from it. And then all the stuff that comes from business school about how you run a business applies. But unless you have those three things, so you can have a great skill set that people really want, but they can't afford it, or you can have a skill set that they can afford, but they don't want, or worse, you can have skills out that nobody either has budget for or even wants. Um, you've got to nail all three, and so, that's where the early work goes. So what I'm what I'm hearing from you about ideas is that you're not really talking about coming up with an idea of a thing that someone will buy. You're talking about expanding whatever your own passion already is. Yeah, if if you want to do this as something that you're going to love doing, which is a very selfish notion. Otherwise. If you're doing, and I think we understate, I think we're enamored at the moment with this idea that your job has to be your calling. I don't right. think it does. I think you could take a job uh, working anywhere and your passion is something else. I think we're too enraptured with this idea that our business has to be, you know, our work has to be everything about us. But if you do want that, then yeah, of course, you, you're trying to take what it is that you love doing and pack, packaging it in a way that 
people find economic value from it. So let's take this as we think about reinvention. So the studios that we're in right now, right, a year ago weren't studios. Actually, that's not true. We had one podcast studio that you're sitting in right now. And we, have a, we had a meeting space for people to come together as humans. In fact, there's probably some tweets out there from me, you know, a year and a half ago saying digital sucks. You should be in person. You can't get anything done digitally. You have to come together. You have to be in the same physical space. And we built out this business that was all about bringing people together in real life. And of course that died yeah, that mid-March. Didn't, that, that, <laughs> didn't, that didn't age well. And so then we had to say, okay, so what capabilities do we have and what there's demand for and what there's budget for? Well, there's no demand for in-person meetings, even if there's budget. There is demand for virtual meetings, and actually most of those virtual meetings absolutely suck in terms of their visual and sound quality and their structure. Okay, so let's take Canvas, which was this meeting space, and turn it into Canvas Studios. Let's buy up as much equipment as we possibly can. Let's learn how to do that. And now Canvas has eight studios. I'm in one, you're in another. And we managed to make it through 2020 by doing virtual meetings and those sorts of things. Now, are we still bringing people together? Yeah. And that's what that business was for. Canvas is about bringing people together. We just had to bring people together digitally instead of um, uh, in person. And so, you know, again, it's back to the Venn diagram. And the back end is what are we going to charge people? How do we manage demand? How do we learn how to use a microphone proficiently? Um, But what starts is that Venn diagram of capability, demand, budget. Right. So... Let me go back to the very beginning when you disagreed that the concept of being an entrepreneur, what I'm hearing is that you're sort of thinking of entrepreneur as the person who opens up multiple, I don't know, Subway sandwich stores, right? Which is not the same thing as doing what you're doing, finding new ways of doing that. Um, So what exactly, because you do a lot of different things. But you are all, but all of them are rooted in your personal skill sets. Like mm-hmm. all the businesses you've started are consulting businesses or things like that, but, but they're rooted in what, whatever it is that you do. What exactly is it that you do? So we are a, uh, we're a team of negotiators and we do two things. We investigate how human beings make decisions and then we build programs to influence the way those human beings make those decisions. So sometimes it's about, uh, products, consumer products, how do consumers choose to choose product A or product B or not use product A or product B? And then how do we get them there? So it's a lot of behavioral economics. Or it's with individuals, which is what is driving executive A to make this decision? And how do we influence executive A and executive B and executive C to agree um, a path forward? When you say you're a negotiator. Yeah. So when's the last time you worked for another person? Oh, God. Uh I did like six months working for a consulting firm um, probably 15 years ago, and he rightfully fired me. <laughs> but you were, doing, you were doing negotiation work or something Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I was doing a lot of facilitation work, and, and with that it was sort of creative ideation, but it was really negotiating with people to uh, execute new ideas. And before that, I was working with the British government doing sort of negotiating, diplomatic stuff. Right. So yeah. that transition from working for someone else to founding sort of serial companies, um, what prompted you to stop working for someone else and take the risk? Because it's a lot of work, this mm-hmm. whole starting a company and, you know, putting your money into it and time and r- r- believing that y- your wits are going to pay your rent. Um, How did you make that jump? 
I was fired. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I mean. The I most think, inspiring story so ever. I, think, I also think most entrepreneurs retroactively bullshit to death about like, oh, I had this vision and I did this thing. And I think if you delve into most, it's right. that actually it wasn't that they're brave and they gave up their jobs and went to do something. Is that actually that risk equation they almost had nothing to lose, so they just went for it. Right. And you can have nothing to lose because your overheads are very low and you just graduated college and, like, who cares? Um, or you can have nothing to lose because you've lost everything and you have nothing to lose. And so, actually, my world corresponds a great deal to to that, is that everything went up in flames and, wow, what have I got to lose? Um, my friend uh, Jeff Kent, I just talked with him, and he, he said exactly the same thing. Did he really? Yeah, he had yeah. a job. Um, well, his wasn't he wasn't fired. He was – he realized that – he was trying, he was starting side hustles. And as he was starting side hustles, he had six months of work lined up. And he realized that at a certain point, that was probably as far into the future as he was ever going to be able to, um, you know, negotiate new deals. So he walked away from his old life into a new life because, but, but as you said, he didn't bravely quit something. He, uh, he had a, he had a reason to go from one path into the other path. You know, it was it was lined up for him. And you're saying that yours wasn't lined up. Your old carpet was pulled out from under you. Yeah, but it's the same thing, isn't it? It's risk calibration. Right, right. So, so my risk on an absolute level, um, you know, I went from income here to income here. But the risk of doing the business was there. So suddenly it aligned. He went the other way. He started pushing up right. uh, his income level or, or his he pushed up what he needed to make not from his job and then could make the jump. But either way, you're leveling the risk equation. And I think that's really important. And I do think that entrepreneurs in the main are not risk takers. I think you, you get that, people confuse that. They're, they're risk mitigators. They mm. will do everything. Actually, you should have Ace Colwood speak on this subject. He's really good. Um, but he'll talk about it, is that entrepreneurs and startups are about risk mitigation, not risk taking. That's awesome. Isn't that interesting? That's really, and I hadn't thought of that. I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I will never advise people to give up their job to start a business. If you're really passionate about the business, you can make this become your hobby in your spare time. Right. So give up all your other hobbies. And she will help you with spending less too, which is another thing you really need to do is to get your overhead really down. And spend your time instead of drinking beer at the local microbrewery is doing work in your passion. Right. And then you're, you're mitigating risk by essentially diversifying your income streams. Absolutely. And then you jump, you, you sort of migrate. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of um, this concept of rapid incrementalism is that you, um, you're changing what you do every day, making small steps towards the thing that you're going for, which allows you, I'm not a big believer in this whole like dramatic failure. And then you reinvent um, is just, not fail fast, just fail small, and then just keep guiding it until you're sort of, you know, taking this road to, to where you want to get to. So this, um, what you're saying now matches a, a thing you said before, and I want to I want to come back to this idea of business um, skills, because we're talking a little bit about um, cash flow. Yeah. And uh, there's really sort of two ways of getting cash flow. One way is, um, you know, venture capital, sort of classic entrepreneur, you get venture capital and you, you keep building things until, you know, you, you borrow money until you're profitable. So you're not profitable for a while. You just keep borrowing money. Um, and that concept of a runway, you know, how much runway do you have? The end of that runway is when you run out of money um, because for the whole rest of the time, you're just trying to build a business that you hope will one day be um, a moneymaker. But you have started the other way, which is sometimes called bootstrapping, which is where you're building, um, you're building within your means, 
But what I'm hearing you say is that um, you're trying to figure out how to sell incrementally. You're not um, – you're not sort of – you don't have like a master plan. Business, business school a lot of times sounds like you have a master plan and then it all works out that way. And what you're saying is you just sort of figure out what the market will bear and then keep going. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very skeptical around fundraising. I think um, – so let's say you're um, – it's funny. If it, I don't watch Shark Tank very often. The odd episode I've seen on, on a plane or something is they're always horrific deals that the entrepreneur is being offered <laughs> and don't take any of them. Like right. don't, don't accept any of them. Um, so the, so there's a couple of reasons not to raise money. One is that the people you're raising money from, there's a really good chance that they're smarter than you are at this, right? right. So you're going to get a bad deal because they do this day in and day out. So the odds of you getting a good deal are unlikely. Um, so if there's any means you can avoid doing that, they will also require, whether it's a commercial bank or a venture capitalist, some degree of skin, of your skin, in that deal so that they know that you're committed. That's reasonable. I understand that. Well, if you're taking that risk anyway, let's see if you can take that risk without having those partners. Because you will have to spend at least 15% of your time managing those investors, reporting to those investors, reassuring those investors, taking guidance from those investors, right. because it's their money and they rightfully want a voice and they rightfully want reporting. If you don't need that, you just save 15% of your time to focus upon business development, growth, right. all of those things. Well, and they also may be investing uh, with the idea of selling, right? Not with the idea mm -hmm. of building a thing that's going to last. Yeah. So particularly if you're in a business that you're passionate about, um, then you know, think through that in the long term. If you're if you if you fail, then sure you spread some of that risk. If you're successful, though, they're going to want to sell that. And if you're integral to the business, that means selling you too, which means for them to be successful, you have to be sold to somebody else, and you end up working for somebody else anyway. Which probably the point of you doing this is not to work for somebody else. So as you sort of game plan that out, the end result that success for them is not success for you. You don't actually have a mutual interest in success. There are very few investors. There are some, but not many, who want to be paid profit distributions, you know, right. throughout the, they, they want to make some uplift on it. There's also something about the nature of these businesses that it's like buying a house to flip it. When you're upgrading the bathroom, are you really upgrading the bathroom to the quality that it would be if you lived in it? Or are you upgrading it that it's sufficient to flip it? Right. Well, right. that applies to your business. And if this is a crime of passion, if this is something you love, you want to do it right. And so... Um, yeah, bootstrapping. And then so bootstrapping also means that you will probably put skin in it. So our whole team, these buildings here, and I include you as part of that wider team, we've built this place. We've painted it. We've installed the microphones. We've installed the equipment. Um, am I worried that people will treat this space with disrespect? Nope. Because right. it's ours. Like Everyone's it's, got skin like in it. Blood, sweat, tears. Um, you walked in this studio just a few minutes ago and said, I need to fix that. <laughs> Um, you didn't say we need to call somebody to fix that. That is a different business, entirely different business. Will it grow as quick? No. Will it be stronger? And we've, we're going through a period of um, extreme stress right now. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a, a wonderful writer. He's an economist um, whose name is going to come to me in a minute. But he writes about anti-fragility um, and this idea of building things, not that are strong, but are anti-fragile which means they can sort of blow in the wind. It's almost like building an mm. earthquake-proof building. Actually, they're not earthquake-proof. They harness the earthquake. They, they go with it. Right. Um, when you build a business from the ground up and you have the right team and they have the skin in it, they can flex, they can bend. Right. Um, if you've got a business plan and you went and you raised money, 
It's like building a rigid structure. It can be really strong under normal conditions. But when any, the stress hits it, it's going to crack. You've got it. That's what I think. Anyway. I like this analogy of a bathroom. <laughs> Business is a bathroom. <laughs> I was off of my towers and earthquakes, and you went with the bathroom. You no, went with the toilet. I mean, no, it's about, it's about you know, building something that you want to use versus building something that you can resell. And yeah. th- those are two different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, cash flow. Yeah. So this is a weird transition, but cash flow is, uh, I've heard you say, is more, it's more important than profit. So when you're first starting out and you don't have a lot, how do you get that, how do you get that first little bit of cash flow? And I think this is something about that incrementalism you're talking about. Like, how do you know what it is you're going to sell? Yeah. Um, you work with partners and work with your customers to do it. We, the most successful business we had, uh, really started because uh, a woman named Jennifer, I won't say her last name, um, but her. hopefully she listens to this. I remember her. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, she wanted us to do some work for her and she intuitively understood that we were a startup and she called one day and she said, listen, if your invoice is $5 less, I can pay this on a credit card, on a procurement card, corporate credit card. If it's this number, going to be paid by check in six weeks Ah. you might just want to send that invoice again wow and we sent it through and the next day x thousand dollars showed up and and then that financed the ability to keep going we had other clients uh one of them was a fortune actually all of these were fortune 500 clients um they they brought us stationery um they brought a surplus paper that weren't being used anymore and was going to be donated and they brought it to the office and it sounds silly but that was, you know, $600 we didn't have to spend on paper and post-it notes and things that weren't on brand for them anymore. Which goes back to another thing you said, which is keeping your costs as low as possible. Absolutely. Which also adds to anti-fragility, right? Yeah, yeah. But it also means that actually your customers have skin in your success because they've helped out. And by the way, say thank you and be, you know, let them know. And, and nobody's breaching any, you're not asking people to breach any ethics, but there are policies in place for certain reasons. Um, and work with that. Provide discounts for uh, cash where a deposit's paid. Um, charge a little more where it's standard invoicing, which is typically six to, oh God, eight, 12 weeks sometimes. Um, yeah, because it's about cash. And I don't think you need to hide it. I think you can just say, you know. We need the cash. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you find, so let me tell a little story and I'll leave the client out of it. <clears throat> so early on when we were, when you were starting, um, your last company. Yeah, it's that, called the Frontier Project. The Frontier Project. Did really well. Still doing really well. Still I don't really have well. any skin in it anymore, but it's no, but a terrific it, company. And that's one of the ones that had multi-million dollars of, of revenue running through yep. it. Um, but early on, it did not. <laughs> no, it didn't. Early on, there were, uh, there were doors with uh, sawhorses yep. in rented space. And um, uh, one, of the, one of the first gigs, um, I was giving a talk uh, at, a, at a big financial company. And you uh, came up on stage and you talked. You didn't give a speech. You talked to them. And then that company became a, a, major, um, a major client that, that really uh, sort of let your company begin to grow. But it was, it was you being up on stage that made that happen. And I remember also, because I was, uh, at this time, you were trying to help me understand how to get in business. And I remember I had some side clients and something else. But you also sent... Um, you know, you sent wine to people to thank them and thank you cards. And there was so much time that you put in to these personal relationships. Um, that's, my, that's my story to lead into this question. How, how do you get clients? 
Like, how do you get clients that are going to do the things that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, do you know, it's interesting if you're in a services business or a creative business, we have never, ever, and this could be down to me, we've never had a successful hire where their job was just sales or business development. And in hmm. business school, they'll teach you that you can do that. Right. And I think I've got to the place now where I believe that if you are in a, a quality service business, which most of your audience will be in right. a creative space, then the, it doesn't have to be one person, but the people doing the work have to be the people that sell it. Actually, I think this applies to accounting. I think it applies to law. It applies to banking is that you don't want to be sold a lawyer by somebody else. You want to be sold that lawyer by that lawyer, that team. Hmm. And so what you need to do is you need to sort of um, politely do show and tell, which is, and I, I actually think that most clients really struggle with the abstract and the conceptual. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't be hiring creative people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's absolutely true. They have different sets of skills. Is that it's really hard for a client to say, now they'll ask for this. They'll say, what would you do for us? And you write this sort of tailored thing that's custom for them. You know, uh, yeah, sounds great, but I'm just not sure. If instead you say, we did this for this thing, they go, oh, I want it just like that and just tweaked for me. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, that's great. But they want to see what you've done. And so this is rapid incrementalism again, is you, you start small. Um, I did this little bit for them and now I can do that little bit for you. And then I do that little bit and that, and you're, you're building trust. People are spending, people are spending their money with you. Um, it is incumbent upon you to build trust with them. And you do that by doing the work in small bits and then showing that work to others with small bits and asking people permission if you can do that. Um, and so you're, you're building um, a network of, of it's, it's Ronald Reagan trust, but verify. I mean, he was talking about Soviet nuclear weapons. In this case, we're talking about creative work, which is build trust, but allow clients to verify that you can actually do this, that you've done it, you've delivered it. Right. And, and, and then they'll trust you to on their project to do a little bit more. And that can go very quickly, but it's got to be in small steps. If you win one big whale, one big client, you will spend your life beholden to them and constantly trying to prove yourself. Right, right, right. Whereas if you build it more sustainably, then uh, that will come. So how do you do it? Tiny bits of work. Start cheap. Don't do things for free, but start cheap. Build it up and build your reputation. Let people know you're doing it for cheap in order to build your reputation. So this uh, don't do it for free, I think, is important, but it's... Um but there's a, a little bit of subtlety here because um, also in the talk that you gave to this large financial yeah. company, you gave away a lot of uh, what we would think of as intellectual property um, during the talk, which you also then were able to sell. I mean, you you essentially, you didn't hide anything when you were up on on stage. You didn't say, you know, if you hire me, you'll get this. You just said, here's stuff that will help you. And then people were like, hey, I'm going to hire that guy. Yeah. So there's two things in that. There's intellectual property and there's, there's uh, the tasting menu. Now, the tasting menu is different, I think, in Europe to North America or certainly the United States. What do you mean tasting menu? So if you go into a bakery, right. there's a reason they cut up the muffins and put a little sample out front because you taste it and they go, oh, I want more of that. I want a whole muffin. But oh, they right. don't give the whole muffin. 
Uh, <laughs> that's just giving shit away for free. Right. But they give something away for free. So I think a lot of these talks and a lot of the small bits that you're putting out there is like your tasting menus, just like having a product. And we'll talk about products and services later, I hope. But um, so there's that angle. But there's also, for those operating in the US market, it's very interesting. If, if, a, um, if an author is giving a talk in the UK, they're often talking about the next book that they're working on because I can buy their current book and I've read it. So right. I want to know a little bit of the backstory, but then, but they've written the book. So I can just buy the book and I read it. And now I want to, I want to know what they're working on next. And so if you go to the, um, the Y book fair, which is like the big book fair in, in the United Kingdom, a little town in Wales, then that's what they're talking about. Like sort of what's, how they did what they did and what's coming next. In America, if David Sedaris comes to speak, they want, the audience wants you to talk about the book and then you go buy the book that's already right. out. Right. Which blows my mind. Right. And they have and they have tables in the back. Yeah, yeah. The book. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so it's like, I'm going to tell you about this thing and then you're going to go buy the thing. Well, you've just told me, David Sedaris reads the bloody thing out and then you go buy it. Uh, it's genius. So, but there is that phenomenon, particularly in the US market, of I, I, I want it, I could do it myself, but actually I'd rather pay you to do it. And so... And the intellectual property thing becomes really interesting to me. Unless, you, unless something's patentable, which is likely to be a scientific thing or process, right. I wouldn't bother with intellectual property at all. Also, I think you're on really dubious ground, is of everything that I've said so far in the few minutes we've been speaking, I've probably stolen stuff left, right, and center. For me, from people who are much smarter than me, who I don't remember where I heard it, um, for me to claim any IP over that is the supreme arrogance. Much better is just keep reading other stuff and being ahead of everybody else. And that's your protection. Your protection is the next time you see me, I'm going to have new stuff, which is better than the last stuff that you saw. In the meantime, the stuff I've already shown you, go use that because I'm working on what's next. And you, talk, you talked a little bit about products and services or you, yeah. you, you dangled that. In I front did. Of you. I fed you it. See, I'm an easy interview. Yeah. So that, the products and service. What's the difference? Uh, okay. Especially, especially as, a, as a, you run a consultant company. Yeah, I do, but we're very tangible. We're a consulting company that turns up with cameras and equipment and trailers. We even got paddle boards that we take on assignment with us um, to make it as producty as possible. We, you mentioned we write letters. We send a lot of snail mail because it's a good sign that we we care, and it's really hard to fake that you care. Writing a letter takes time, and and right. yeah. Anyway, so why do we try to be as producty as possible? Let me try this with you. Um, name, uh, name me three products that you love. Three Anything. products I love uh, that I can say on the air. Yeah, <laughs> that you use. <laughs> three things you use that you love. Uh, I love my truck. Mm-hmm. I love my truck. That's my, and um, I guess uh, probably my iPhone. I use that a lot. Yep. Um, I would say my, my computer, but so as not to sound like a slave to Apple, I'll also say this audio equipment, I, I'm actually fond of it. Okay. So, but this stuff, and I like, I like the, I like the, uh, the physicality of it and the, um, I don't know, the quality of it. Great. I can do the same thing. I'm looking around here right now. I actually love that Bose speaker. Uh, I love the MacBook and uh, this mug, actually, the Mia mug. I think it's great. I really like using it. I use it every day. Okay. Now, uh, name me three services that you love. <laughs> um, be easier to name three services that I hate. Ah, everybody, everybody goes there. Yeah, oh, goes no, there, but let goes. me tell you about this. Yeah, Verizon's <laughs> customer service. And... It's usually that or ADT or right. something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we don't, I, I don't know that I can name a service. We don't like services. We love things. We love things. Therefore, why on earth would you want to be the best services company in the world? Because inherently, we don't like services. We like things. So be as close to a product as thing. Productize yourself. And even the subscriptions that we use, the Spotify's and that sort of thing, they're very much producty. They're just replacing albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, CDs. it's an app that I like that app. Yeah. Or I like that interface. Yeah. Well, and also I hadn't thought of this, but when I, when you do facilitation, you have a lot of handouts and you have a lot of um, mm-hmm. things, that, things that you bring, work that you bring, hand, hands-on stuff. Yep. Yeah. Right? People like stuff. We feel gypped if we don't have stuff. And the amazing thing is, you can tell people you're doing it for that reason, and it still works. Right. Well, and right. you said, you know, Sedaris, you're not talking. I mean, he, he he wrote a book. There's a book. There's a thing. Right. It's even giving even public speakers aren't just selling their talk. They're selling a book associated with it, or a website, or a yeah. newsletter. Or- yeah. Don't write a book to make money. Not from the book. Make money from talking about the book. Right. Okay. So we've talked I need to write a new book. I was talking to Matt about that today. Right, right. Ideas. We we're talking about getting ideas and, you know, sort of expanding what you're doing. We talked about when do you make the jump. We talked about uh, clients a little bit because that's mm-hmm. really the hard bit. When you're, when you're first starting up, how much of your business is spent getting new clients and how much of it is spent servicing the clients you've already got? Because you only have so many hours in the day. 90%. I, I don't mean that as a flipping point. Like it's really hard to get going. Really, really hard. So in the beginning, you're spending most of your time just trying to find someone else to do a thing for. Yeah. So this is why you have to start small and get your overhead down. So um, imagine your working week. Your working week is going to be 60 or 70 hours, not 40 hours. So a tenth of that, seven hours, you can spend actually doing the work. The remaining 90%, you are going to spend the rest of that week, you're going to spend getting to know people, writing materials about the stuff that you can do, your capabilities, all of those things. So you have to start start small or you're not going to deliver on the project. And your reputation is everything, so you have to deliver on the project. So start really small. And then over time, what you're banking on is that first project that you got, that client is going to come back to you because you did really good work on it and you were honest about it. They'll come back, so you don't need to win that client anymore. You just need to keep in touch with them and they'll come back. and then you use that to show that you can do it and you win your second client, but you're still only going to be 20% of your time that you're doing the work until you get to the point, which is your ideal, where the work you're doing leads to new work coming sort, in. Sort of on its own, sort of Because momentum. people hear about it and you referred it and you get to that point and then you can start playing with pricing over demand, demand pricing. Right. So, so let's talk about that. How do you price something? Like, how do you figure out what, what, what the market will bear? <laughs> do you know one of my favorites are the insecure lawyers who tell you what their billing rate is? And I've, I've had various law firms as clients, and I can tell you what people say they bill at and what actually is billed is very different things. You are worth what people will pay for you. Um, it is a law of economics. It's not a rule of economics. It is a law of economics. Um, it's like the laws of gravity is you are worth what people will pay for you. Um, and that's going to be different at different times uh, in different marketplaces. And so, um, you know, you you charge what the market will bear. And, and to start with, it's not going to be much. And get comfortable with that. And as you get better, as it should be, these laws of economics right. for a reason. Well, you also charge different rates for different types of clients. Yes and no. We charge different currencies. Think of it this way. We probably charge everybody the same. But we charge... Um, 
a different currency. So if so, people often ask for government rates or nonprofit rates. Let's use that as an example, mm-hmm. or favors, just favors from friends. So um, let's say that your your headline corporate rate is a hundred dollars an hour for round numbers, and that in return for that, the client gets a confidentiality agreement, and everything that you do for them is exclusively for them. So um, you can't talk about it. And the work that you do, you can't recycle for somebody else because it's their stuff and they're paying full rate for that. Right. Great. So okay. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So a nonprofit comes along and goes, oh, we're a nonprofit. What's your nonprofit rate? Well, I think your nonprofit rate should be $100 per hour paid for in different currencies and that you're very transparent with the client that you do this. And so, oh, God, I should patent this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you say different currencies. So here are your currencies. I don't mean British pounds and euros and yeah. US dollars. What I mean is, so your the cash might be $50 an hour, but how you make up the other 50 is that the intellectual property is shared. They can use it, but also you can use it for other clients. Oh. So you start to build that inventory of things that you can repackage. So if you, if you make some handouts for them, you can reuse them. Use those. them yourselves. And um, that it is public domain that both you and they will publicize the fact that you did that work for them. And so that, and you can sort of quantify what that's worth for you. Because the trouble is with the corporate thing that's paid at the full full rate in US dollars or euros or cash, um, is that's not going to generate any business for you outside of that client. So they might come right. back to you, but you can't tell it, you can't post it on LinkedIn, you can't do those things. They'll rightfully fire you for doing that or sue you for doing right. that. And usually they make you sign a non-disclosure. Absolutely, as they should, because they're, pay, they're paying full whack. Um, anybody less than full whack, then they should pay for it in different ways. Or it can be timing, right? So there's, a, there's always like demand and supply at different times, just like with the hotel rooms or airline tickets, you know, that that seat on the, on the Delta airline or the Virgin Atlantic plane is worth entirely different things depending upon where the demand cycle is. And the same for you. So... Uh, you could say to that nonprofit, you know, we're going to bridge that $50 or you could even take the $30, but we're going to do this work in, uh, between Christmas and new year's when things are really quiet in the corporate market oh, or in the you. middle of I August, right? So this is how we're going to make it work, but there isn't a nonprofit rate or there isn't a government rate or there isn't those things. There's flexibility. I got you. Yeah. So you are you. Yeah. Now, and then, so if you've got, if, if that's your supply price, then you've got to match it with how much demand is in the market and also how much supply. So how much competition there is. And so that is how many other people can do what you do uh, of the same quality of the same experience and um, for that rate. And so you have to keep an eye on the, on the competitor, but the best thing you can do is differentiate what you do. So it's, so the number of people who do what you do is less. That's, you know, um, uh, a friend of mine is a fight director back when taxes were in a different form, when you could write things off, all actors and directors and designers would write off everything you could. We used to have shoeboxes full of receipts, right? If you had a coffee with somebody and you were talking about business, you wrote that off. We had, you know, and we, there were special accounts for this, but what he used to do going to this rate, that's interesting. He used to charge everyone the same rate. So it was, you know, whatever thousands of dollars for. And then if he wanted to do the work for a small, you know, nonprofit theater or something, he would donate back part of his salary. So he'd say, I want the contract to say I got $6,000 and I'm going to donate $5,000 back to you. And then he'd write that off his taxes as a charitable donation. Now, I'm not sure. How Don't legal name him. Is. I'm not sure that's legal. I have no idea. But, Actually, no, but, it, but it's that same idea. You're talking about, you're talking about different currencies. You're talking about the same rate, but different currencies. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. If 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 that's legit and that's legal, it would be a it'd be another way to go. It is a reminder, by the way, of um, don't don't try to become an expert in accounting or law. Um, use good people. If you're building something significant, pay the money for the right advice, but have your shit together because they advisors want profitable clients, not high revenue clients. And so if you're organized, um, then your tax advisor doesn't need to spend long with you and they get to do the interesting work and not constantly chasing you for papers. Hmm. And then you can afford to work with somebody who's really good and they will set up the system for you to do it. Um, there's lots of things you can do yourself. You can do your own bookkeeping, but have a really good CPA set up that bookkeeping system for you from the outset. That's good advice. Um, and so then do it yourself. Jail. So you do the grunt work yourself or pay somebody else grunt rates to do the grunt work, but get the right advice from the outset. That's genius. You also, so you, you and I have had multiple conversations along these oh, lines. Oh, hang, hang, hang on. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to this competition thing. So, because I think you do this. Um, the There are plenty of actors, professional actors like yourself, who throw themselves out there and say, I, you know, I can do presentation coaching or I can do training about, X, you know, presence right. and those sorts of things. I think one of the things you do is you put yourself in a different bracket because often these trainings come together and, and it'll be like a leadership retreat where you are one component of it. Right. So there's like an hour and a half training about presentation skills or presence or whatever it is. But then you have this thing where you can do like burning whips and sword fighting, which do. you can also be the evening entertainment, right? Because all these yeah, yeah. things have like, and then we do cocktails. So for Aaron, so, so there are lots of actors who can do presentation training. There aren't that many actors who can do presentation training. And then for a little bit more money, can also be your evening entertainment, but you're already there, you're already on site. So we've suddenly moved Aaron from being in this massive pool of actors into this very small pool of actors who can teach and who can also set fire to shit and do yeah, tricks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, in business, that's, and again, going back to this idea that businesses are going to have the language for this. It's a unique value, right? How, how am I different from all the other people. So here's, so here's the question for everybody that they don't teach in business school. Maybe you teach this in the EMBA is what's your burning whip? <laughs> everybody needs to have that burning whip. What is that? What I'm is the thing say, that just puts them into a different field? Well, I'm just going to say, if you have a whip that you catch on fire and you crack that and people want to pay you to do that. Don't do this at home, you, kids. You, no, you should definitely do this at home. That's exactly what you should do. I'm just saying, if you have a whip that catches on fire and you crack, why don't you do that? This is why you should also have an LLC to protect you from lawsuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this insurance. This is not legal advice. And insurance. you got to have insurance. So um, we talked about ideas and clients and uh, cash flow and accounting. So, uh, so let, I have a friend who's trying to start a new um, sub- business in his business. He's got a, he, he's a mask maker, a wonderful mask maker. He makes, he's probably the world's You premier. mean like masks here, not masks, masks here. Masks that you put like on your face. theater masks. Theater masks. Not As a matter of fact, masks. it's uh, Jonathan uh, uh, um, uh, Becker at theatermasks.com. Theater, go, go buy from Jonathan. Theater-masks.com. He's the leading theater mask producer in the world. That's so good. It's, it's, a, it's a, talk about a niche market. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's trying to, he's got a successful business, got a successful web page. He's trying to make a sub web page uh, or uh, that he can bring other artists together. He, he, he had a, um, essentially a, 
uh, lab where theater people and performance people, dancers, performance artists could come from all over the world. He owned a mansion. He owned this giant mansion. And you could come and, uh, you know, have a residency there. And so what he's trying to do <laughs> so, is now so sketchy. It's just bizarre, isn't it? It's but it's really cool. I love it. It's yeah. really cool. Well, and well, since the pandemic and since all that sort of stuff, people don't come together and do that. And so he's sold the mansion. He's moved. He's got a bunch of things. But now he's trying to create recreate that space where different people can come together and have conversations. And so he wants to make a, a, a web page where you can do that. And I was like, well, you know, don't they have Facebook groups that do this? He's like, no, there's going to be different because of this and this and this. But what he called me for was to ask what to name it. And I realized I don't know the theory behind naming. Now, you've started, and I've watched you do this. You've started multiple companies. And I saw in a period of a couple days, you started a company, created a name, created a website, and had it up and running. How do you come up with the names for these things? I mean, I know people agonize over this. And there's a, there are some very bullshitty advertising agencies that make a lot of money doing this for companies. Um, I think there are a couple of rules. Uh, one is what the name is, and then what is the vernacular going to be? And um, being very conscious about that. So um, the name itself doesn't really matter, but Am I using the word vernacular correctly? Yeah, yeah. How it's used is important. Yeah. So, for instance, um, Canvas, our studios, uh, we, the website is canvasstudiosrva.com. Go look at it, rent it. Um, the legal name is probably Canvas Event Space LLC. Okay. Neither of those really matter so much. What matters is we just call it Canvas. So, and clients call it Canvas. Are we doing this thing from Canvas? Oh, meet you at Canvas, was it? So, but but it's easy. Right? It's very easy. Our consulting firm legally is called Envoy Portfolio LLC. The URL is envoyportfolio.com. But clients say, hey, we'll have the Envoy team do that. What's Envoy going to be doing? The Frontier Project, it's company before, frontierproject.com. Go visit it, go buy their stuff. Um, but I was very, we'd occasionally have employees call it TFP. Like, no, 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 no. We call it Frontier. Right. Because it needs to be, Easy and it needs to mean something, and TFP doesn't mean anything. But what is so? What is you came up with? So Frontier Canvas. They're all very similar, aren't they? Well, if they, you think about it, like if yeah. they're in that same rhythm, yeah. Yeah. Is it is that it? Is it the rhythm? Is it the way it feels? I think so, because I think in a services business that we're trying to productize, but fundamentally, is you're selling people. Is that even if you're an artist, you're not like think about think of like a piece of art. And how much backstory goes into the sale of that piece of art? Very rarely do we go, oh, that's an anonymous artist. And it blows my mind that I'm going to pay $5,000 for that. Normally it's, you know, this was made by a, you know, Cuban who had one arm. Right. And grew up in, you know, Afghanistan or something, whatever. Um, so, so I think backstory is very important. But really backstory is about the feeling around it. Around it. And so... Um, you know, backstory is very important. Canvas is a good example. Canvas, lots of people think, means just a blank slate. That's fine, but it's not. The reason the backstory is that Canvas is an acronym for the Center for Advanced Negotiations and a venue for alternative scenarios. It's a place to have really difficult conversations. Ooh, that's good. And a place to imagine different futures. And we made that virtual, right? So the mission hasn't changed. But now that I've told you that, when you describe it, you say it's called Canvas. You're going to think it's like this blank slate thing. It's not. It's this. I can't even remember the acronym. Let's go online and see what it is. Um, and so, 
so there has to be meaning for it. Envoy uh, is obviously you have envoys. Some of us come from actually many of us come from an international relations background. Um, envoy is a diplomat, uh, an envoy extraordinaire or an envoy uh, planetary. You know, you're representing something. Also from the French, it comes from French envoyer to send. And we're often sent on behalf of a client to go investigate or build bridges or do those things. So Backstory is important, but it's got to be sort of fairly simple. And I'm kind of a fan of it says what it is on the tin. So Envoy does that. Canvas does that. Frontier was always looking at the next thing that kind of fit too. Um, so yeah, these sort of, unless you've got a big branding budget, if you if you name something in a very abstract sense, then you've got to put all of that investment into explaining what the thing is. Right, right, yeah. right. How you? Yeah, I always tell people when they're writing resumes, if they're applying for jobs, if their whole cover letter is about how they don't look like, right? If you read my, if you read my CV, it doesn't look like I'm qualified for this job, but here's why. So if if, if half your letter is about, you know, why it doesn't look right, <laughs> you're, you're 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 not going to get that job. Yeah. I mean, and that's true for business too. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you talk about you talk about getting the early clients. I think it's very much like getting a job is that there's all this theory about how it's done. But fundamentally, people are saying, what will you do for me? Right. And me, not my company, but for me, will you make my life easier? I, I think there are um, just a few things that sell is lifting people's load, right? Genuinely, uh, genuine help, not sort of mother-in-law help. Um, right. The. Um, is very sexist. Mother or father-in-law help. Um, so will you lift my load? Uh, will you make me look good? Uh, which also translates to will you help me get that promotion? Right. Um, and will you protect me? Right. And um, will you? So there's a gain and a and a fallback. Right. Um, so process. So offense, offensive and defensive. Right. Will you help me get ahead, you. or will you keep me from getting behind? Yeah. So you talked about this again. We, you and I have had these conversations many times, and. Uh, I'm always intrigued by how well you sell things. You are so good at pitching stuff. So, for instance, um, during some consulting things, I have sometimes showed up and, uh, you know, been given orders by uh, the company you're working for that they sold a product that didn't yet exist. Um, you know, multiple times, even uh, there's a talk. You have to develop this talk. Here's the title of it. Um, h- how do you... What is it that makes you, and, and you can dispute this if you want, but you are one of the best salesmen I know. And at every company that I've worked with you at, or at which we've worked together, you've been, if not the top salesman, certainly one of the top. No, you've always been the top salesman. What makes you better? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm trying to work out if I'm resisting that tag because salesperson, you know, oh. I've got this sort of social, or whether I genuinely believe that I'm not a salesperson. I mean, we sell, we, I mean, we do influence for a living. So it's almost impossible for me not to try to influence the decisions of people whom we might want to work with. Well, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer because I've also seen you land deals and it was never a sale. It was never a pitch, right? It was never an elevator pitch by this. It was always, um, it was always part of a larger process of influence, sort of going back to um, your relationship with Jennifer and the larger companies and, you know, you were always in partnership with people rather than a vendor. Well, so actually this is interesting because I think that I've no, I haven't thought about this before sort of in a structured way, like you asked the question, because I think there's probably two levels of going at it. So one is 
when you're kind of finding your feet and you haven't fully worked out sort of who you are and what you do, which probably means you're quite expansive in terms of what you'll do for a living, uh, for your little business. And there's sort of very well documented. It's worth a read. There's a book called The Challenger Sale. I think that's what it's called. It's Challenger something. And it's all about not going from sort of pleasing, but to pushing the client to the next level. And I like it because, you know, whether you're expert or not, in partnership, you're trying to push the client to the next level, which is kind right. of the point, right? You right. want to do something. And so we've always done that in all of our companies. I do think, though, and so, yeah, there were times um, there was one of our um, leaders in, a, in, in the last firm at Frontier, Natalie Garamond, I think it was Natalie, would um, talk about me uh, future truthing, which was to speak in the present sense about what we would be in the future. <laughs> and that it worked because we always did. We always landed there, and therefore that was the distinction between bullshit and future. Well, training. that was that was uh, that was famous. Steve Jobs also famously they called it his reality distortion field, but he was always right. Oh yeah, because he went there. And so, but part of that is I make very few promises. And so, in a sense, when you you're doing that, you're saying, but we whether it kills us, we will get to that. And so, so that's one. But I do think at this stage, and maybe this is just because we're really old, is that the, what I learned was, actually it's related to this, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. We went, we were very, very successful for a while, financially and sort of awards galore. But as a, what we did is we had to become big and broad to do that, to suck in that revenue and, and right. employ that number of people. What it meant was that at the periphery, we weren't like the very best in the world at what we do, at what we did. Um, and so it became harder to sell. You had to do more of that future truthing. Well, we'll get there, but we'll get there on this like broad front of things that we do. It was a brilliant group of people and we had the best of intentions and it, it worked very, very well and still, still could. But interesting that the, the leadership of Frontier, and as I say, I'm not in that now, have, have I think rightly, um, I uh, have done for a couple of years now, more tightly defined the area in which they operate to become more and more expert in that field, which is leadership development and training and, and um, culture right. change. And so I think this is a good lesson. I realize this is getting very dull now, but for people thinking about doing their thing is what is the thing they can look somebody in the eye and say, I'm one of the best people in the world to do this thing. And with Envoy now and Canvas, actually, Canvas is, I believe, the most grounded place in the world to hold your meeting. Not the prettiest, yeah. not the coolest, not the, the most grounded. Yeah, We've worked so hard on it. And I can sit there with and go, yep, there are all these wonderful places, all these things. You want the most grounded place? You come here. Envoy, um, I believe we are the best in the world for getting people to speak their truth and find a way forward, whatever that is. I think we're the best in the world at it. Can we be innovative? Yeah. Are we the best? No. Can we be creative? Yep. Are we the best? Nope. Shouldn't hire it. If you want the best in the world, they're, they're, they're sort of byproducts of what we're the very best in the world at, but we're the very best in the world at this. And once you do that, there's a weird thing happens is that you can see a client that you'd love to work with and do this incredible thing and tell the truth. <laughs> well, maybe that's the difference between you say to that client. Right? You say to that client, I believe we're the best in the world at this, and I would like us to work for you. Now, let's find a way to make that happen. And they might say, you're crazy, because I think the best in the world is this. But more than not, they'll say, show us some of your stuff. 
Right. Let's try this out. And actually, if you really want to work with them, you'll find a way to do that. And that's what I do now is I, I call people up and say, No, I want to work with you. I want to work with you. What, what does it take? I like that. What does it take to work with you? Now, how does that jibe? That you get lots of rejection, by the way. Well, but, but actually, if you get rejection from something like that, if it is very specific and it's about a thing, eh, probably not going to be great clients. Right, right. Well, and also, eventually, if you keep doing that, you're going to figure out what it is that you are actually best at. Yeah. Because the market's going to tell you instead of your, uh, would you, you know, your surveys. Now, how does, I, I like this. This is, this is very actionable. Be the best at something. But how, how does that jibe with something else I've heard you talk about, which is be 80% good enough? Uh, because it accounts for time. Okay. So um, the last 20% of any project is always the most time-consuming. Um, and to, to borrow language from my teammate Ace, um, you got to ship it. And, and every day that it's not shipped, it's not in the marketplace, you're losing ground. Right. And so it's not 80% in that... Um, so what we would do is we'd take a project scope and we'd say to the client, okay, this is the project. What outcome do you want? And the thing we often dismiss is the, the role that time plays in that. And so uh, what you're brief, the contract always has a project deliverable. We'll always talk about what is the outcome that you want. And so um, the, the 80% is the, the best, the most cost-effective way to, to that outcome is to do 80% of the project in half the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you get that competitive advantage because it's the last 20% that takes forever. Now, sometimes it's absolutely critical, but rarely. Right. So that, that, uh, that Venn diagram that my designers use, uh, my designer friends, uh, fast, good, cheap, choose two. Yeah. You're saying, no, cheap, you're, you're going to do, do all three, but you're going you're gonna to do it good. Yeah. So you can, be great. You can do fast, good, cheap um, with the 80%. It's the last 20% that, that messes you up. So uh, let me give you an example. We do a raft of media work, but we're not a media company. Right. Because we're using media to get to the outcome. What we're not commissioned to do is to produce Super Bowl ads. 98% of corporations don't need a Super Bowl ad right now. What they do need is they need documentary style media that can provide insight into how their customers are making decisions, how their executives are making decisions, communicating to people about change that they're going to have to go through. And you only need 80% of the production value of a Super Bowl ad. Um, to, get, to get the outcome you want. Yeah, which is faster. It's great for, it's it, so fit for purpose, right? The quality is 100% fit for purpose, right? but it's 80% of what it might be. And so I think it's very similar to academia is that I think academia is scope for a huge reinvention because we're still using the academic silos that existed when Harvard and Oxford were established. Um, but all the interesting stuff is when you cut across disciplines. You do this all the time. You combine, oh my God, acting and theater skills with medicine. Right. Um, but there isn't a department of acting, theater skills, and medicine. Damn it. Um, <laughs> you may create one yet. Um, and so I, th I think industry is the same. You have a PR firm an agency and even when they're under the same roof they're still under the same disciplines right they're still divisions within it or departments that's, within it you know what that's genius and the action I, is just cut cut across it no yeah is, that's yeah. It. that's genius because you're essentially you know a big company is going to hire so maybe they have a pr firm maybe they have a marketing firm maybe they have a division of you know creating ads or something like that an ad an ad company that they do but what you're able to do is go in and say, I can cut across those areas 
And I'm not going to do any one of those things 100% as good as a standalone media company. But I'm going to come up with, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to deliver this for you in the time frame that is going to work for you. Yeah. So, you know, if you're a product company, it's likely that the outcome you want is higher sales or a higher price. And so then you, what, so you call a marketing firm to do that or an ad agency or a product development firm. Well, you don't know yet. So what you got to do is you got to go look at why, not how, but why your existing customers and potential customers are making the choices that they do. And the answer to that, it might be brand, it might be marketing, it might be a product design, it might be the, the lid, you know, and people can't get it open, whatever it is, the thing. So you got to find out the why. And that's our job. Our job is to find out the why. And then we, we come up with the answer, but not necessarily build the solution. So we're like, well, the why is they can't open the goddamn jar. Right. And so that becomes an engineering challenge, you know, or a product. And that goes to IDEO. It might be they don't understand what you do. Okay, that goes to publicists, that global ad, you know, one of their agencies that will solve that. Or people don't believe it. Okay, that's a branding thing. But what we often do is we sort of prescribe the solution because we pres prescribe the project, not the outcome. Um, and so, yeah. So I only have, uh, I only have one more question. I can bore people to tears. No, no, this. dude, this is awesome. I only have one more question yeah. before I sort of ask my rap question. And the one more question is uh, when you and I talked about things like this before, yeah. you, uh, you had a concept that I, I just thought was genius, which was about, and I'm beginning to understand more about this concept of sales versus, um, uh, you know, influence versus, you know, just doing the thing and working with people. But you talked about dangling things in front of uh, clients. And the, the story, we, you know, we started with uh, uh, this very large financial company and you got up on stage, but you didn't pitch anything. You just talked to them, but you did give a lot of stuff away. When, you, when you're selling something or influencing or whatever it is you want to call it, um, do, do you have a guiding principle? But you talked about dangling things before. Yeah, it's a little bit like, so if we, if, if, if we want a journalist to cover something the, on behalf of a client, the very last thing we're going to do is send a press release. Like the, the worst thing to do, send a press release. Um, or to even tell the journalist about it. What we will do is we'll, we'll work out what motivates the journalist, what they're interested in, and sort of just lay it out on their path for them to discover it. And we won't do this. As I've worked in worlds that were more sort of illicit than this. Um, it's not malevolently. You do it in plain sight. It's just, oh, it's there. You might want to look at that. Um, and I think we just, we just did it over a microphone. I walked in. I was like, hey, look at this. Does that. Oh, and you went, oh, oh that's yeah. interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I went and got this cup of tea. I came back and, and you yelled from that studio to this studio, hey, how much did that cost? And you've probably bought one while interviewing me on this interview. <laughs> right. Um because it's just it's just the best, right. right? And interesting is not particularly expensive, is it? But it's one hundred percent fit for purpose. It's a really good example. Um, it is not the best microphone in the world, but it was one hundred percent fit for purpose for what it you does. And I it brought. does it. It does it cheaply. It does it, and it does it yeah. well. And yeah, yeah. And f interesting, faster. It's got fast. So so. But the point is, I didn't sell it. I'm not. I'm not, I didn't even do, I just went, oh, look at this. This is cool. This is, and then you did it. So when you're on stage and, and you're right, we don't give speeches. We just talk about, these are the methodologies we use. 
they might be helpful for you. And I'm guessing that 80% of people, well, 50% of people think it's rubbish and disagree with it. Of the remaining 50% that think it's valuable, 40 of those 50 go do it themselves. Great. The world is a slightly better place. Because you just told them how. Yep. Five might ask you to teach them how to do it. And then five go, I get it. You guys do it for us. Right. And so you're, you're just, it's just, this is, this is what we do. And, and I think if you're really, and I do think we're the best at what we do. If you are the best at what you do, you're, you're, you don't have to down talk how other people do it, who also may believe they're the best at what they do. And so again, it's very like academia, I think. It's like peer review, which is like, oh, this is a really interesting approach. I disagree with this approach. You might find that approach helpful. Right. I personally think design thinking isn't a great methodology. IDEO do. Right. They're right. really successful at it. If I would encourage a client to look at the way we do things, and I'd really encourage them to look at the way that IDEO do things. Um, and, but that's great. But I'm not threatened by that. I'm certain that IDEO is not threatened by us. Um, or McKinsey Institute, for that matter. Um, there are different ways of getting to similar outcomes. And it's a bit like dating. You're, you're dating philosophies of what works. And so you've got to show it. My dating philosophy was to go out with anyone and say yes. It's <laughs> not the way to build a business. That was, it was like throwing um, spaghetti you got, at the wall. You got very lucky and have been batting out of your league for the whole oh, time that oh, Sakamoto has been with you. So, but, but I do think, you know, but it does get into the spaces. If you're protective of your stuff, you end up into this, what I'd call a superlative reservoir of we, it's all those meaningless words, right? Of we're the world's leader at strategizing over the synergies of the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. empathizing. I like, firstly, anybody can build a Squarespace website and put those words on it. And you don't know the depth. You have to show the working. You have to show behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, you're going to risk that people steal it. Well, just be really good and move on to the, like, just keep getting better. Yeah. So here's the last question. Okay. And I asked, I asked Still this. Still my high horse about this. No, this yeah. is perfect. I ask everybody this, and this was what started it. When I asked people, if you could go, and there's, it's, it's the same question phrased two different ways. You can mm -hmm. answer either version. For the people who are listening and are thinking about making a pivot in their lives um, or thinking about taking a jump into a entrepreneurial, for lack of a better word, um, horizon, is there what one piece of advice would you give them right now? And this, this is the same question phrased a different way. If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, if you knew then what you know now, what, what one piece is the most important? Can I do two? Yeah, of course. Okay. The one is a practical one, which is crush what you need to spend. Sell the expensive car, move to a cheap house. Um, give up fancy eating habits, um, get used to wearing clothes from Target or buy a fancy shirt, but wear that same shirt for, you know, wash it four times a week. Right. Because it's back to your friend and this mitigating risk, the less you need, the more risks you can take in the business. Hmm. Now, the good thing is you're going to be working so hard. There's very little time to spend that money anyway, but, um, I get rid of anything that, that, you know, you, you're on the hook for because the, the less income you need, regardless of how much you make, right? You might make half a million dollars, but if you only need $40,000 a year to live, you'll be much bolder in the business and you only need to make $50,000. So, and, and you're not talking about, you're not just talking about cut your expenses in your business. You're talking about make your life less risky. Yes. Less oh, risky. forget the business, make your expenses because, oh, look, we love to think that we make 
decisions differently about the business than ourselves. Ultimately, we make it through the lens of ourselves. And if you're worried about paying that enormous mortgage or that car payment, you're going to be much more cautious in the business. So slash And those. much more financially. Get rid driven. of the bloody Tesla. That's silly anyway. But yeah, because that will make you much more aggressive in the marketplace. Um, braver. It will make you braver. I used to jump out of planes and bungee jump and stuff, and then I had kids. I'm less brave, right? That's right. Because all right. I was to be lost was me, and, you know, mom would be disappointed, but I, yeah. yeah. So do that. And then the other one is make sure that what you're doing, and it might be because you love business, and it might be, is something that you is congruent. I love this word. It's congruent with who you are because you are going to be living and breathing it. You can't help it. You will be working every hour of the day. And so do something that really switches you on. Because um, that's the point. There, there aren't, there, it's, if your goal is to make I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, there are easier ways to do it through the corporate ladder than doing it this way. You're going to have to work much harder to get to that number. So really just make sure you love it. It's like going to grad school. Don't go to grad school to, to do something that uh, will get you rich. Go to grad school to study something you love because it won't be grad school. It'll just be studying things yeah, that you love. Just a second ago before we turned the microphones on, yeah. we, were, we were talking about this a little bit. And, you know, we're, that, that follow your passion is such, a, uh, such an overused trope because that's not exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about do something that you dig doing and look for outcomes that you dig doing. Or dig for you know you're you're trying to do a thing, you would still do what you're doing even if you had all the money in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do that. Otherwise, don't do it. Because unless, not if you're a creative. If you're really in a business, you're going to run that porta potty business, and there might be an opportunity for you to make tons of cash. Right. But if but if you're a creative, like get your costs down, and then make sure that you're doing the thing that you love and get paid for that, and then you know it's not work anymore because. And you need it to not be work anymore because you're going to be doing it all the time because that's the only way you can get these things off the ground is to just work all the time. And so just, it will be hell if you're doing something that's not you. And so maybe it's not something that you love. It's something that's congruent with who you are. Congruency. Um, and then the last thing that we talked about when we, when you and I did sort of a dry run of this. We didn't do a dry run. Let's tell the truth about it. We did the whole thing, and then we both agreed it wasn't good enough. Well, sort of, sort of. But, but we've talked about different things today. We did talk it's about different better. things today. Questions about it. There you was, did a better job, Aaron. There was, <laughs> <laughs> if we did it 10 times, I would, I would get incrementally better every time. <laughs> I'm not sure. The, la that's, uh, the, the story that you told that you ended our last talk with I, m moved me to uh, almost goosebumps, which was you were talking about um, – the ice cream analogy. Do you mind repeating that? I can't remember it. <laughs> you were talking about if you're going to sell ice cream, right? Yeah. If you're going to sell cookies and bakery and all this sort of yeah. stuff, or are you going to do you buy do you buy cookies from the you know essentially do you buy oh, Japanese oh, food? Yes, yes. Sorry, no, I know. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you buy, do you buy Japanese about. food from the Asian store? Yes. Or do you buy it from the Japanese yeah, yeah, yeah. store? So, so I think actually, I think all the partners in the Frontier Project would be able to relate to this. Is that we we grew very quickly and we we became at significant size. Because clients were asking us to do lots and lots. And the clients were right. We were very capable at doing it. But it meant that we became an and company. We do training and we do uh, product design and we do public speaking and, we, and, 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 and. By the way, we're very good at all those things. And the team did a phenomenal job of covering those, those bases. Um, and I think, you know, what, what Ryan and then Grant after, after her 
have done is say, let's focus in this sort of leadership development and culture change space, which right. is fantastic. But by owning that space, I now go to them and I say, oh, I, I really want to shift the culture of the organization. Can you help me? And they say, yeah, we can. I might then ask, let's say Grant, who's now the CEO, to give a speech about how you do that. So he can do that, but he's going to stay at the core of what he does. Um, likewise with us, um, even though I probably could give a speech about product innovation, I won't do that anymore. I'm going to talk mm. about negotiation. It's, the, it's hard this because it's not to say turn down the cash, it's to stay to your core. And yeah, the example I give is, do you want to buy ice cream from an ice cream and cookie store or an ice cream store? You want to buy it from an ice cream store. But while you're there, you might buy a cookie, but it's an ice cream store because it's the best at selling ice cream. And it happens to have cookies. Right. So find that thing. I really, this the first time I right. told it was much right. better. But you, don't, but, you don't, but you don't get your oil changed at the place where you get ice cream and cookies. It's not no. ice cream and cookies and oil change. It's, some, it's, it's rooted in a, in a core thing. And if it expands, it expands very slightly off of its core identity. Yeah. If Spotify suddenly started selling cars, that's a big leap. But Spotify doing podcasts, not so much. You listen right. to it through these things. Right, yeah. right. So That was a terrible lesson. No, it was a great out. lesson. It was a great lesson. Actually, all this, because um, the last time we talked, it was more just let's tell stories. Yeah. And this time I really wanted to just sort of talk about like if I'm starting a business or if I'm trying to pivot and I, I haven't been to business school and I don't know all those questions, what are the things that I want to focus on? And you've done a nice job. This is sort of a little master class about the key ideas of getting going. Um, and, and I think, and it's rooted in not theory, but it's rooted in your experience of having done this. And that's exactly what I wanted you to do. And I really thank you for that. So what's the, what's the website for your company is what? Yes, you should buy stuff here. The website is envoyportfolio.com is the, is the consulting firm and uh, canvasstudiosrva.com okay. is for Canvas. And um, Feel free to send us money. <laughs> and for uh, those who are listening, I'm going to put up on the uh, reinventionpodcast.com, I'm going to put up the, the business lessons sheet, sort of what to think about when you're starting lessons, and I'll send it out to everybody else. But for the, in the meantime, Scott, you've been one of my dearest friends, and I, I said this earlier. I'm going to go ahead and put it on video. My friendship with you, my relationship with you has changed my life. And the reason it's changed my life is because I didn't know anything about business when I first started this. I was a, I'm a theater person who does sword fighting. And I found myself, from my relationship with you, within a matter of days, in front of a company, in sort of a, uh, what was it, like American Idol thing. I was just supposed to talk about body language. But it was me and you and a designer and a, another business person. And we were helping a, a multi-million dollar, a Fortune One company, talk about what to do with an extra billion dollars in sales. And I remember thinking, <laughs> this is <laughs> like yesterday I was on a film set and today I'm here. And but since then, because of what it is you do and who you are, I, it really has, my relationship with you has absolutely changed my life. And that's why I wanted you to talk to the people who are listening to this. So I thank you. So I'm having two different emotions, two different thoughts as you say that. One is um, a little bit of a lump in my throat. And thank you so much. That means a lot. And I'm um, honored to play a little bit of a role in your life. The other is... Aaron saying nice things about me, that means he forgot to hit record. <laughs> There'll be no evidence of this. We're going to have to do this whole thing I didn't, again. I didn't record any of that, man. Are you kidding? Didn't happen. 
All right. Thank you, Scott. I'm going to hit the off button now. 